In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we're revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die, you know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Memphis. I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. This is The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices. 13 people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. Martin Luther King III had to grow up too fast. He was 10 years old when his father, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was murdered in April 1968. At such a young age, the oldest son of the civil rights icon was forced to break away from his shy and inward personality to take on the role of the man of the house. In this 2008 interview with Martin Luther King III, he gives insight on the King household after the tragic death of its patriarch. Their family was, in reality, no different from any other American family with the challenges of a one-parent home, sibling rivalries, teenage mischief. Perhaps more intriguing is the younger King's description of who Dr. King was as a father away from the marches and away from the pulpit. From King's account, his father was a great pool player, a basketball player, and just an all-around fun dad. It's a lot of weight to have that name, to have lost your father in that way at such an early age. Former AJC reporter Jim Ock Mooney conducted the interview. Martin has had you know, a distinguished career of public service. Uh, he at various times has been involved in the leadership of the SCLC. But um, it, it's tough being the son of Martin Luther King Jr. And that's something that he, I mean, no, he hadn't flipped out or done anything weird or, you know, become Mr. Substance Abuse or anything like that. He, he's, he's comported himself well. But still, it's so difficult to, to deal with that legacy, and I, and I think that um, I think it's been a problem for him at times. I'm Martin Luther King III, uh, oldest son of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. As we uh, approach this 40th anniversary, uh, much comes to mind. I was 10 years old in 1968 at the time of uh, our father's passing or assassination. A lot was thrust on my shoulders as the oldest son, probably by a number of individuals in our circle. Not in a negative way, but in a way that 
caused one to feel that you had to grow up uh, at 10 years old. As the oldest son, uh, I was told by some, now you're the man of the house, which means that you should take certain responsibilities. Of course, I took that a little too far because I attempted to try to tell my older sister, Yolanda, what to do. Uh, that didn't go over too well with her. What, what, did, what do you mean? What did you tell her to do? What, what are you getting at there? Well, at, at some point, I, I thought that um, you, you forget in our society, no matter the one who is the older, uh, it probably uh, certainly has more liberties and authorities than one who is younger. And because I was the man of the house, I would attempt to, uh, to tell things. For example, in the context of growing up, um, I was um, probably more of a, uh, a shy and kind of uh, inward, inward child. I, didn't, I was not uh, very assertive uh, at that time, nor was I, uh, I really was not aggressive in terms of behavior. Um, I didn't go through the phase that many young people do where you go out and party. Um, just sow your wild oats and try things in the world. Um, I was pretty much regimented. And uh, at some point, for example, as most young people do, Yolanda uh, would borrow our, one of my mom's cars. Or my, uh, and uh, she was not yet old enough to have her actual permit to drive. She had a driver's license. And you know, when I guess when it was beneficial, for example, if we wanted her to go to the store and get us something, it was fine. But when she wanted to do something on her own agenda, then, you know, it was my responsibility to say, now, if you go, I'm going to tell. Uh, those kind of things. Nothing major, just little minor things. But obviously, that didn't go over well. And uh, at some point, I, I think she disliked me. Um, uh, uh, and she would have she physically was with us, she would say that. Not because, uh, not real serious animosity, but then at a certain point as we got older, we became much closer uh, when she went away to college and uh, I was in my senior year of high school um, and she would have been in her second year. And she began to share things with me uh, that I enjoyed, for example, introducing me to jazz music uh, and the club scene, a more mature club scene, a different kind of club scene, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, but as youngsters, uh, we were at it. In fact, I would have to say that all of us, um, I, and I guess this, this is no different than any other household, uh, kids are always at each other. I, I don't know that, I, I think I was not as kind as I would like to think I was, certainly to uh, our younger sister, Bernice. Uh, kids just do things not intentionally and it wasn't because we were not raised properly it was it's just kid thing kid things I don't know uh, as I say I wish I could could do some of those things differently but that's who we were and, and I would even go as far as to say as, as Dexter and I would have confrontations from time to time um, as we got older and began to truly appreciate the concept of nonviolence uh, that our parents uh, advocated then it became different. But of course, as kids, I'd have to, embarrassingly, I'll say we did have uh, fights from time to time, or tussles, uh, just over little issues, nothing major. But th there were, you know, knock down, drag out struggles from time to time. But I think that's a part of growing up. You were only 10 when your father died, was killed. What, what do you remember about the last time you saw him? The last time I believe that I saw my father would have been maybe when he was uh, headed to Memphis, or it might have been when he had come from Memphis. He went two or three times during the time uh, before he was killed. And I don't remember if I saw him the last time or, or I saw him coming in the house uh, after he'd come from Memphis and was preparing to go back. But what I do remember is on any occasion that Daddy came home, it's, it, I can vividly remember 
sometimes his appearing to be exhausted as he was walking up the stairs because naturally we could hear the car uh, come in the, in the house and we would uh, sometimes watch him, sometimes he would come from uh, outside, other times. Uh, sometimes he would drive in, in the garage and come in from the basement, other times he would come up the stairs from outside because a staff member or, or uh, someone had dropped him off. But I remember him vividly coming up the stairs, and I don't remember which occasion this was. And he was—he appeared to be just, just dog-tired. But yet, once the door was opened, and although we were watching him come up the stairs, he saw us. It's almost like this, this energy came from somewhere. I, you know, you just don't know where it comes from. But it, it so all of a sudden appeared, and it was like his total moment was devoted toward fulfilling uh, our, our desires. And of course, as kids, we just wanted our daddy. We just wanted to see daddy. So it was, it was very fulfilling uh, whenever he came home. Then, of course, on, on Sunday uh, mornings, we would have uh, breakfast and share Bible verses and hear the stories that he and mom shared about the work that he was involved in. Uh, it was always very exciting uh, I don't remember him sharing much the sermons that he was going to preach on those days, but um, perhaps on, on one occasion or two he, he may have had that conversation with us. But more than anything else, we didn't have a serious uh, conversation. We didn't need to. Uh, we needed to have our daddy to be our friend, to be our, our our, our buddy to, to show us the love that he always showed because there was not a large quantity of time but the quality was remarkable um, absolutely incredible. Did, he, did y'all play games with him? Well oftentimes we did play games when, when dad came home uh, in the front yard from time to time we would play uh, football he tossed the ball or baseball and then there were times when uh, Dexter and I accompanied him he would go to the Butler Street YMCA for to swim and to also get uh, exercise uh, and a massage and so our, our, from, from our perspective we were just accompanying him and having a great time and in fact that's where we learned to swim Dexter and I interestingly enough all of all four of us as the children of Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King Jr. could swim, but for some reason my mom never learned. And I don't know why that was. But Daddy taught us, so we enjoyed that. Uh, then there were other times when, um, because he was involved in a major campaign, he would come home and generally people wanted to see him. People walking up the street, people driving by, uh, they would stop. and so. He eventually uh, said to mom that we needed to play inside. And so that was fun for us because I don't remember if we tossed the ball, but we did things inside that normally should have been done outside. So naturally she was frantic uh, because she felt we were tearing up her house uh, and, you know, her home. But we really weren't. Uh, but it was, it was great because now, you know, if we tried to do that on our own volition, it would have been a different discussion. We would have been punished or, or, or got whippings or something like that. So we couldn't do that, you know, we, only when he, was, when he was there. And it was understood that he had to play with us inside because, and so later on we got a ping pong table and Daddy was a pretty good pool player. So we had a pool player, a pool table. So, you know, we'd watch him and we learned kind of how to play pool and ping pong, pong and do some of those, those things that you do inside. Andy Young told me one time he could shoot. I wasn't real tall. <laughs> I'm told that he he shot basketball pretty well uh, to to be about five five eight five eight five nine. I I didn't I don't remember ever seeing him do that. But I'm also told that he was he could jump very well. Mm -hmm. But uh, my my uncle and others told me that just in general he was a, a very good athlete. Uh, any sport, baseball or football, and I remember seeing pictures of the staff kind of playing touch football and, and from time to time uh, when he had those very rare moments uh, to engage in those, those games. What do you remember about the night that he died, April 4, 1968? April 4, 1968 um, 
was probably the most difficult light, uh, night of, of our lives because we were watching the evening news. We were accustomed to watching the news. I don't remember which network, if it was ABC, CBS, NBC, that's all that existed at that time. Uh, but we were watching the, the news and, and over the news came, uh, the commentator said, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has just been shot. And obviously we became somewhat frantic, uh, not screaming and hollering, but we were like, oh my God. And so I remember us assembling and we were sitting in our family room in the front of our home on, on Sunset. And we ran back to, this is the last home that uh, the daddy lived in. And in fact, the home that, that mom lived in until uh, her, the last year of her life. Uh, but um, we ran back to mother's, to the room, to their room to get some indication from her what this meant or what was going on. Obviously, we were bewildered, we were confused, we just wanted an explanation. Um, she did at some point, and what I don't remember if it was then initially or later on, explained to us, uh, because she had, uh, we told she had heard from Ambassador Young uh, and Jesse Jackson, both of them had called to say in their own way that, you know, uh, I'm told that, that Jesse Jackson said in his cavalier way, Doc's been sh shot, catch the first thing smoking. Um, of course, Ambassador Young was very diplomatic, you know, Martin's been shot, it looks pretty bad, and maybe you ought to come and be, be by his side. And so she was preparing herself uh, to go and be uh, with him. Um, as a result, um, I remember her leaving and so many people arriving at our home in that period of time. I believe this was like six, six-ish, between six and seven p.m on that Thursday evening, April 4th. She went to the airport um, and along with some staff and there were a number of people who were there to care for us. And when she arrived at the airport, of course, Mayor Ivan Island uh, joined in some, I don't know if he went with her from the house or if he met her, uh, but I'm told that she arrived at the airport along with Daddy's secretary who just passed recently, Miss Dora McDonald was with my mother and I don't, maybe, I don't remember who else. But she went into the restroom and when she came out, I think Mary Allen was coming toward her to let her know that he had passed um, because he had gotten that news. And of course she came back home and as opposed to going that night and said, you know, I need to be with the children. Um, and I don't remember a whole lot more. I don't remember, you know, I remember asking a lot of questions. What I can say, is that at some point, mother said to us, you know, daddy has gone home to live with God. And he has served, uh, when, when God's servants serve him well, he sometimes takes them and brings them home. And she said that one day, we will be able to see him or be with him again. That was enough for me. There were a number of other questions that I'm sure every, everyone raised, um, but that comforted me for that moment enough. The daddy had served God well, and uh, although it was premature, we felt um, it's impossible to replace a loved one, I was okay with the fact that, you know, my daddy has done some good things and now he's gone home to live with God. And I, when he sees you, I think she said, he will appear as if he is sleeping. He will not be able to, to hug or embrace you as he always did or kiss you. Uh, but he is resting and he's with God. And I mean, that was a beautiful way of characterizing it for, for a 10-year-old child. So she was preparing you for that moment when you were going to see him in state. Yes, she was preparing us for, for that moment and what we should expect um, and, uh, you know, trying to give as much information as, as she could. I don't remember having questions about specifically what happened until a later point uh, when, uh, when I came to the conclusion that, uh, you know, our father was gunned down for his own convictions, for, for 
belief it's, it's very ironic that one who embraced love and nonviolence and, 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 and really was a, an incredible, not just humanitarian, but a man with the spiritual conviction, but that our, a society would actually feel that, or some one in society would feel that this was a, a person that need to, to, needed to be killed. Uh, so it's, it's, an, it's an ironic scenario because you would assume that, uh, and this is of course after much thought and as an adult, that violence begets violence. So if you embrace violence then, you know, you live by the sword, you probably perhaps will die by the sword. But for one who, who didn't believe in that uh, and, and devoted his entire existence uh, to showing us how we could live together without destroying personal property, it's quite ironic. Uh, that uh, a gunman would, would, would feel that this person uh, needs to be removed. At 10, I wonder how, I mean, you probably didn't really understand everything that was going on here. Uh, we were talking to Zernona Clayton, who was mm -hmm. in, in the house that you mm -hmm. know for, for a good deal of time during all that period. She was, she was remembering that you, just to sort of point out how uncomprehending a child could be about mm -hmm. all of this, she was she was saying that you were you're one of the things that you were saying that night was well, go I got to go to school, school tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. I I don't remember that exactly, but uh, I can em envision that I was concerned about what my I think uh, she shared with me as well that I was concerned. Well, what what is my teacher going to say? I'm. I'm not going to school because this was, I didn't realize the magnitude of time because actually we probably were out of school um, on Friday and then of course Monday and Tuesday and maybe as late as the following Wednesday. So it was several days that we would have been out of school. What I do remember and uh, just, just, I mean, I, I wish I could say that um, I was as diligent of a student as I was one who just wanted to be present. <laughs> but uh, what I do remember is that on April um, 8th, which would have been Monday, we uh, buried Daddy April 9th, that Mom uh, went to Memphis to lead the uh, a demonstration that he was to have led. And in retrospect, that, as a kid, you, you just, you know, you, you whatever your mom tells you that you should do, you, you do. and you. You love you, you know. A parent is is um, is, is your first uh, uh, caregiver, and and whatever they suggest you do, well, some you do things because you're supposed to obey your parents. But you know, in retrospect, I, I didn't realize how significant it, what she was doing was. But very few people would have been able to pick up the mantle after their husband or if it had been a wife had been gunned down, you go on and lead a demonstration less than three, three days after uh, that loved one is killed. And the fact that none of the uh, individuals who had committed the crime had been captured. And so from a safety perspective, there are a number of factors, uh, but she didn't pay any attention to any of that. She went on and, and led that demonstration, feeling that this is what he would have wanted her to do. I mean, it's a very powerful example that my mom set for us as children to later on just realize that the, the, the kind of commitment that she had uh, to, to her husband and, and, and certainly the mission that he had. I mean, it's, it's absolutely uh, incredible when, you, when one thinks about it. So we went to that demonstration. I don't remember much about it. I just remember flying to Memphis for the day, her leading the demonstration, doing a speech and march down one of the major streets, and then coming back uh, to Atlanta the next day for the, uh, today we would call it a home-going service, but for the funeral of our father. When we come back, Martin Luther King III talks about the moment he realized just how huge of an impact his father had on society. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. 
It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to the Voices of King. Former AJC reporter Jim Mooney. It, it was like a head of state had died. And for some people, it was a personal thing. I mean, obviously, Harry Belafonte had had a longstanding, deep relationship with the Kings and had been a supporter of the movement for years. So it was very personal for him. Ivan Allen Jr., in a different way, was very personal. I mean, he was the mayor of Atlanta. And King was the most famous citizen of Atlanta. So uh, he both, I think, deeply cared about the King family and about handling things correctly, but he also knew that Atlanta, his city, would be judged on how they handled it. Uh, and then you had other people, and I think Kennedy had, uh, I don't know how close he was to the Kings, but obviously they were political allies, uh, so there was a closeness there. And then you had other people who were really not very close at all, uh, like Richard Nixon, who, who did come by the House. Uh, who was, you know, running well on his way to getting the Republican nomination that year for president. Um, Hubert Humphrey, uh, you know, Jackie, uh, Onassis, Kennedy, coming later that uh, day. Yeah, all these, it, it was like a head of state had died. During this whole period of time, we had any number of visitors um, in our home from every presidential candidate the ones who were most prominent at the time were, uh, of course, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy and, and Ethel Kennedy, and uh, Ted Kennedy, and at that time his wife Joan, and of course Jackie Onassis. They all were in our home, along with other presidential aspirants. Um, at some point, uh, President Nixon, who was running, of course, then came. Uh, so it was individuals from, from both parties uh, as well as entertainers, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and, and uh, Sidney Poitier. Obviously, Harry Belafonte was right there because he was very close to Daddy. But uh, you had any number of people, uh, James Brown, uh, Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin's father had been close to Dad and my grandfather as uh, being a minister of C.L. Franklin. Um, and um, then you had uh, people like uh, Marlon Brando and I believe even, even Charlton Heston, all of these individuals who were uh, huge uh, um, entertainers of our, of our day and elected officials or prospective elected officials. That's when I began to realize that what uh, our father did was, was huge. I mean, he was not just an average individual. And then, of course, to be at the funeral um, and to, to march from Ebenezer Church to Morehouse College and that entire distance on both sides of the street were people lined by the thousands and then from Morehouse College to the cemetery at that time I believe it was Southview initially um, and not to see uh, be able to see an empty spot I mean it was um, it was a tough time because people were very quiet and respectful and a lot of tears in retrospect were shared. I, I don't remember that specifically at the time because you obviously are consumed with your own pain, but to be able to, as I've envisioned, just those throngs of people who were there to pay tribute, um, it, it, was, it was quite an experience. Do you remember having any interactions yourselves with any of those well-known people? Yes, I do remember. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, I do remember um, Bill Cosby and Robert Culp, who was in the program I Spy at that time. Uh, and Bill Cosby perhaps spent some time with my mom, but then he came and spent time with us as the children. And um, he, he, he was, obviously he's always been very good with children, but he was particularly uh, insightful because he, I think we were having trouble sleeping, I know I was. And I don't remember which day this was specifically, but he shared a story. And uh, the story had something 
I wish I could remember it now exactly, but whatever it was. For example, he, he gave us a group of words to say. And these words were like imaginary words. And whatever our pain was, if we said these words, it would revert back to a normal set of circumstances. So, for example, we'd lost Daddy. It was painful. Well, you say these words and everything will go back to normal. I mean, it was, it was not real, but it, it was, it was, the words were strong enough to, to give us hope. And that's really what he did. I wish I could remember those exact words. I doubt very seriously if he even remembers. I'm sure he remembers talking to us. But I'd like to ask him one day, do you remember on times, occasions when I've seen him? You know, I've always thanked him for when he came, but I, I've never asked him, well, now, what, do you remember what you told us? I'd like to know. But it, 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 whatever it was, it gave us the feeling that, you know, we could make it another day because these words just kind of helped us to, to finally go to sleep. So he spent uh, a, a, a decent amount of time with us as kids. Uh, the others, I, I don't remember any others but him uh, spending that, that amount of time. And, and I mean, in terms of people who were, were noted, there were a number of people who spent time with us, and, and we thank God for all those uh, friends uh, that spent time with us. You said you were having trouble sleeping those nights because of you know, I'm sure I did have nightmares, but I, do, I don't remember them um, that, at this point. I, from time to time, for example, one, one of the things that, and I don't know if this would be a nightmare, uh, but I know there were a number of times where I had dreams, and I dreamed that uh, what we had just been exposed to was not true. That it was all not a facade, but it just it just didn't happen. I would dream, and it would go back to as if you know our, our father was still here and our family was together, and the happy times that we focused on that that happened often. I would dream dreams like that, but I don't remember having just nightmares. And then I probably had dreams of the actual um, the flashes because it was flashed on television so much of him being up there on the balcony and being shot, and then the, pre the, uh, the days that it preceded uh, the activities where the thongs and thousands and thousands of people, I, I had those kind of dreams, but I, I don't really remember like nightmares. Um, That's a happy dream though, remembering what it was like as if it hadn't happened. Was that a very specific dream? I mean, would y'all be having dinner? Would you be playing in the yard? I mean, what? What form did that Honestly, I, I do not remember the content of those dreams now. I do, but, but yes, they were positive dreams. I just don't remember. I'm sure I did, but I don't remember having nightmares. I don't remember. I know that some of my siblings uh, talked about having dreams of people who were deceased chasing them. I never had those kind of dreams. The, um, do you remember what your reaction was as a boy? You saw your father in the Oakland camps. Well, my first reaction when I saw my our father uh, as a kid was was um, to look at how he looked in the casket. Now, I think there were two or three occasions because on one occasion he was. Um, we were able to physically touch him. I don't remember if I did. I don't remember wanting to, to do that. Um, oftentimes people will kiss a loved one. I don't remember doing that. Uh, but then there, there was, because he was shot uh, on this side of his jaw, you could see heavy makeup. And it was to, to fill in where his jaw had been uh, shot off. And, uh, but I remember looking at him thinking that while he looked sleep it didn't totally look like him that was the one thing that i remember then on another occasion there was a glass so that you could see him but you couldn't physically get to him the glass at some point when the viewing took place for the public when we viewed him i think it it may have been at uh, hanley bell cemetery 
uh, excuse me, mortuary, which was is no longer, I don't think does not exist anymore, but it was not far from the church, and we may have viewed him there initially. Uh, but the body uh, at, at uh, probably on Friday, on April 5th, or Saturday, I believe, was brought back to Atlanta, and the undertakers in Memphis did what they needed to do, and then, of course, the undertakers who, in Atlanta, uh, you know, did even, even more, I guess. Uh, but I, I don't remember a lot about the, that other than I do know that I didn't want to touch, I don't remember touching Daddy, Daddy's body. I didn't. The body was brought back on Friday. Uh, the family had a private view yeah, over yeah. at Spelman late Saturday. I don't remember and that. Then, and then it was open for public yeah. viewing. Uh, I remember like going to the evening. to the funeral home before, right. so we must have done some of that, and then maybe went to the viewing at Spelman privately, and then I I just I don't remember it. All of that is a little sketchy, right. the specifics. But that's why I say, at one point we viewed him without the glass, and then at another point the glass was put on. So we viewed a, at least a couple of times. I remember I think one of the viewings was at Ebenezer, I believe. Uh, in addition, I, for some reason, I just don't remember Spellman. Do you have much of a, a memory of, of the funeral itself and of the procession and that whole pageant of grief that took place? Yeah, yes and no. Um, again, that, that was a, um, what I remember more than anything else about the funeral was the amount of time and the fact that uh, one funeral service was at Ebenezer and the other one was at Morehouse. I do not remember the specifics in relationships to the eulogies that Dr. Abernathy and Dr. Mays did. Uh, I don't remember many of the other speakers. I do remember uh, toward the end of the funeral at Ebenezer that Daddy's own, his own, he had done his own eulogy. And I remember at the end of the service at Ebenezer that that was played. Uh, how he wanted to be remembered. Uh, and I, I remember the, like, those words as if it was yesterday, but of course I've heard them many times too. So. It was played in the church and yes. on, out, out, out on the street. Yeah, for some the, reason I didn't grounds. remember, well of course I wouldn't know, I knew that, but I, I wouldn't have heard that being in the church. Mm -hmm. um, I thought you were going to say it was played at, at Morehouse as well, but I didn't remember that. So. Yeah. I had a question, um, and you could answer to Jim mm -hmm. as well. Um, Bernice talked about that, that eulogy being played that Dr. King gave uh, mm -hmm. at the funeral. What what was the feeling that you had when you heard your father's voice at the funeral? And um, the second question is, what was the feeling that you had when you realized that your father was killed rather than just, you know, that, that he died? You know, like, what was that feeling about what those two things? Well, I, I think uh, when, when I first heard those words um, at the eulogy, and every time that I hear them, uh, they bring tears to my eyes because of the, the, the fact that what he was talking about to me was, was truly exempl exemplified um, not just how he wanted to be remembered, it was, it was certainly who he was, but more than that, it was what he said that was so powerful, that he didn't want to be remembered for, you know, for awards, uh, uh, didn't want to be remembered for speeches that he delivered, but that he tried to make a difference in the lives of people. And it's so, I mean, as I say, when I think about it, it, it sort of bring, brings tears. When I actually hear him saying it, um, it's, so, it's so powerful. The words are so, so powerful. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm, as a kid, I think then I was more in, turned inward and just thinking about the fact that my dad was gone and I would never be able to, to, to be in his arms again. So I don't think I really, it was later on that I listened and listened to the eulogy that I said, wow, this is quite powerful. Um, 
And then I, I said, well, if, if all of us, I mean, he truly personified the fact that if a person is not found something worth dying for, they're not fit to live. That's a very powerful statement. He believed that fervently and gave his life. Um, and when you think about the fact of uh, the propheticness of, of how um, he wasn't, you know, he could have been at a college or university, he could have been a, a business leader, he, he could have done most anything, but he gave his life in the context of service for the least of these, God's children, sanitation workers. Uh, I mean, I, I just don't know how other, what other way to describe it. It was just powerful. The second question, um, I forgot. When, oh. you, when you realized that um, your father was, was killed mm -hmm. rather than, and you saw him uh, in the casket, but like when you realized that someone killed my father, you know, what, what was that like? You know, well, when, when, one, well, first of all, I don't know when I learned this, but probably as a very early, my our parents taught us not to harbor any hatred and uh, or malice. And then I heard it preached later on and later on by my my grandfather Martin Luther King Sr., uh, who used to say, I, "I love every man. I'm every man's brother." the man that killed my lovely wife or the man that killed my son. I, I don't even hate them. I, so we learned how to dislike the evil act and still love, love the individual. When we thought it was James already, uh, we never hated, hated him. We certainly believed that uh, the system should work and punishment would be in order. Uh, we were not ones who advocated the death penalty because we didn't believe in that. Uh, but later on, of course, we, we even found out that um, although, you know, I, my understanding is CNN is going to say to James O. Ray uh, was, the, was the sole assassin, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's very unfortunate that you disregard um, a whole lot of information that says different. And I, I haven't seen that special, so I don't know that, but that's what I'm being told. But my, my higher point is that it really is about the spirit of love. I think if I want to correlate this to where we are today and a nation, as a nation, because if we had chosen to embrace some of what Martin Luther King Jr. espoused, maybe we wouldn't have been in a war in Iraq and nearly 4,000 uh, fathers mostly and some mothers um, lost their lives uh, for not a, a good reason. I, I don't know if there's ever a good reason for death, but still, um, in this context, for no reason almost at all, just because we were trying to find something that never existed, uh, weapons of mass destruction. And if we had chosen to operate in a Kingian way, which was we've been attacked, uh, maybe we should evaluate that and not do what we always do, which is to go find someone else to attack. We should operate a little differently. We haven't learned that, and so we've, we found ourselves in a huge quagmire where we've spent almost a trillion dollars on death and destruction. If we had spent half a trillion on life and the preservation of life, um, maybe our society would be different, and maybe we would be looked at differently, and certainly this economy would be different. I've always gotten the sense that the family is much more interested in celebrating the life mm -hmm. in January than the death mm -hmm. in April. Uh, is that true? And, and uh, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, well I, I'd certainly say my, my mother was certainly focused on the life, that the death was not something that she felt we should uh, focus on beyond uh, laying a wreath, although she participated in various ceremonies uh, or observances that SCLC would have over the years uh, during, uh, during the, the, the uh, actual anniversary. This year, for example, uh, Bernice and I are participating in, in, a, in, in an observance of, of the anniversary of the death. Um, not that we focus on death, because it really isn't. 
it really is uh, taking an opportunity to say, okay, 40 years ago, this is where we were. This is what tragically happened. How are we going to work uh, to make the dream of freedom and justice and equality as a society become real for all humankind? Uh, that's what I think our father and our mother would want us to do. Um, not just as, as the, the siblings, but as a society in general, because we can, in fact, make the, this, this world in which we all live a better world if all of us are doing just a little bit. So, yes, mom didn't, want, didn't focus much personally on the death, but uh, I, think, I think it's appropriate to focus certainly first on the life but uh, they are an, an, the anniversary of the death also comes around every year. And so I think you have to utilize the opportunities when people are going to be focused. Um, and you take uh, uh, that which is certainly generally seen as negative and, and try to transform it into something positive. Have you been to Memphis much over the years? I go to Memphis uh, periodically, not on an annual basis. When I was president of the SCLC, we had our convention there one, one year. Uh, I've gone to visit the museum. Uh, the museum in Memphis um, also fosters the story about James O'Ray, which we went to Memphis about uh, eight years ago, roughly, uh, and uh, were engaged in a, in a civil a suit, a trial, where over 75 witnesses came forward to corroborate the fact that you know, we want, from our perspective, we just wanted to know how our father was killed. We're not trying to uh, just make an issue, a big issue out of it, just for closure. You know, everyone deserves to know how their loved ones uh, were taken from them. So we feel pretty confident that what was shared with us is, is the truth, although society doesn't want to accept that at this point. At least that's the way it appears. Um, but my, my higher point is um, I, I go into Memphis on a, on a, you know, sort of regular basis, a couple of times a year, according to what we're doing. I uh, did a uh, most recently through realizing the dream. We went to, we've gone to 37 communities of 50 communities that we plan to go to, and one of those communities, looking at poverty in America, uh, was Memphis. In each community, we would pull together religious leaders, political leaders, community leaders, and business leaders, because those are the four, uh, four of the uh, groups that I believe have the ability to sit down and discuss and, and address the issue of poverty. Uh, I think that on this 40th anniversary, as we've approached this 40th anniversary, that uh, we need to be focused on where Martin Luther King Jr. was. And Martin King Jr. talked about triple evils of poverty, uh, racism, and militarism that needed to be eradicated. It's very interesting. Um, poverty has grown uh, tremendously uh, and unfortunately because of the economic crunch is going to get worse before it gets better. We haven't hit bottom yet, I don't believe. And so uh, that's an area we've got to really focus on. Racism is far better than it was 45 years ago. However, it still reels its head uh, as we are seeing with the campaign of Senator Obama. Um, racism is, is very real in America. And the thirdly, milit however, it's far better. I mean, that doesn't mean that we aren't, uh, made, we had made progress. It, I think that's the area where we've made more progress than not. Poverty, we hadn't made an ounce of progress in my judgment. Militarism, clearly, we haven't made any progress on because we are a militarized society. And so, of those triple evils that my father characterized them, um, we've got a lot of work to do in the 21st century. It's interesting that, that you, you know, there are some people who, I know Andy Young doesn't like to go to Memphis, and your, your, your Aunt Christine mm -hmm. is telling us that she hasn't been there, won't go there. But uh, it's, it's interesting to see the different attitudes. Okay, so I, need, I do need to ask you about James Earl Ray, which mm -hmm. you brought up a couple of times. What's your belief about what happened there? I think James Earl Ray was a total patsy. I, I really think that based on the evidence that I've seen, that uh, James Earl Ray was hired to do a function. And I think he did that function to give a perception that he was uh, an assassin. But I, if James Earl Ray, uh, I believe James Earl Ray, uh, shot my father as, as much as my neighbor who lives next door to me. I, I just don't believe that, based on the information that I've seen. 
And uh, of course, you know, with him being deceased now, I, I don't know that, uh, I don't even know that it's, I'm not sure what the relevance of, because of, I really don't necessarily want to focus on him per se. I understand you're asking the question and why people would want to know. But I, th I think, you know, I, th I think um, for me, as I said, from closure standpoint, you know, I don't, I, if, if CNN and others are going to say that he did that, I would wonder why and what is it based on. And there'll be enough smoke and mirrors to make it appear that that's what happened. But, um, you know, we have evidence that shows something different. And I, I would only hope that people who are real seekers of truth would, would seek the truth. Uh, but if they don't, I mean, that's fine, too. I mean, from my perspective as a family member, I think we got about 90, 90 to 95% of the truth. Okay, let me, let me make sure I understand. You don't, uh, you think Ray was involved in something, but that he wasn't the person who pulled the trigger? I absolutely don't believe James O'Ray pulled the trigger. I don't think, uh, I think he was hired uh, to do various functions. Uh, for example, go and purchase a gun that was similar to the gun that was used. Uh, he drove a vehicle that was similar to a vehicle, um, looked just like the vehicle. In fact, people don't even realize there were two Mustangs. The Mustang that James O'Ray allegedly got away in was there was another one identical to it. And that part of the story is never told. It's almost like people disregard it. Um, you know, you don't, you don't, I mean, it doesn't even make sense. You go and shoot somebody, you walk out of the front of the restaurant and you leave a gun or a gun right there in the doorway, you're running, but it, it's just too many things that happen that would make you, if you have any intelligence, question it. But, you know, people don't want to deal with truth because some of the truth might deal with them specifically. I mean, there are people in Memphis who don't want to necessarily confront that, who may still be alive. I'm not suggesting they were the actual assassins, but they, there's a reason that there were too many people who had to be in collaboration. So people just don't want to want to deal with that. And that's why, you know, my position is we found out the truth from what we believe is truth. Uh, we needed to as a family and, and we've moved forward. But I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time, you know, talking about because the other thing is whether it was James O'Rea or someone else, none of that brings our loved one back. So from our perspective, we needed to know but, you know, if you ask me, do I believe James O'Ray pulled the trigger? Absolutely not. Do I believe James O'Ray was a patsy? Yes. I believe he was, he was hired to move around various places around the country to give the perception that he was following my dad. Do I think he knew what he was involved in? I doubt. I don't think so. I really don't. And, then, and I don't want to dwell on this too much either because it's certainly not the main point mm -hmm. why we came here today. But I do want to ask you one other thing. If, if he didn't do it and he was a patsy, then what's your belief about who was responsible for your father's death? Well, I, I think there, there are a number of forces involved. I think there was a, an elaborate um, plan that was partially um, um, some government, levels of government that were involved, but um, I think a hired gun. There was, my, my understanding is there was a hired gun that was hired by a combination of, of entities like the, uh, um, the, the mob was involved, um, along with um, some elements of the government. Uh, so there was a civilian team that was hired, and they were the ones who executed it. And I think the gentleman, I'm told the gentleman that did it was a, a former Memphis policeman that's deceased now. Uh, sharpshooter because uh, this particular person climbed over the wall and got into a police vehicle somewhere down the street and this was reported by a cab driver and all mysteriously that cab driver was killed. So a lot of things happen that let you know that it's far bigger than, than what, what we'll ever know the, the exact truth. Um, but Lloyd Jowers, who owned the grill, the restaurant, uh, confirmed a lot of this in his own testimony. Now, of course, he was going back and forth. First he said this, then he said that. But at the end of the day, a lot of things that he said came to, to fruition. There are those who believe that, you know, he was shot from the, a balcony window, uh, bathroom up in the... In fact, the, the problem I have with the museum 
is that they sometimes say this is the, the story, this is how James Earl Ray, as opposed to saying this is a theory. Well, my dad was shot here. So if you were, in, and if I'm here and you were in a window up above, how can you, unless you had a trick bullet that comes and goes, the bullet hit him under here and blew off his whole jaw. So the bullet had to come from under him for that to be the case. It couldn't come from above. But nobody asks these questions. Nobody seems to want to know the truth. So, you know, that's why I say there's a lot more to it. And supposedly James O'Reilly was in this bathroom on this windowsill, left and ran outside and dropped a gun on his way running. I mean, all of this just doesn't make sense to me. Anything else, John? There was just one more. I got two things to oh, say sorry. in a minute, but, but go ahead. Oh, no, no, okay. you can go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. What I, the, the, one of the things that's important, I think, um, uh, to, to me personally and, and most exciting is the fact that um, in this anniversary year, the first grandchild uh, will be born uh, to my mother and father. And so that's the positive note. 40 years after uh, our, our father uh, was killed, uh, a grandchild, a king grandchild, will, will be born. And so uh, my wife and I are very excited um, as we approach the date. And the other thing is uh, last year was a tough year for our, our family, just as 2006 was. Um, last year in May, of course, our, our sister Yolanda passed. and. Uh, this year in May, our child will be born and it's going to be named in honor of uh, my sister Yolanda. So it's very exciting. It's interesting how, you know, things work. Uh, my, my mom was uh, passed in January of 2006 and then I, I married in May of 2006. So um, May of 2007, Yolanda passed and in May of 2008, uh, we'll have a, our first baby. So. Uh, Andrea and I, so we're very, very, very ecstatic uh, about uh, approaching this time. So that's the good, uh, you know, you have to take, uh, in, in all of our lives, rain falls, and tragedy occurs. We all know that uh, we don't know how long any of us are going to be here. So what happened in my life, um, you know, I'm thankful that I did have 10 years with, with my dad. There are young people out here today, and I will say this parallel. When I was growing up, I was an anomaly. It's rare that a cow, would, their father might be killed um, through violence. It happened, but very rarely. Today, there are many young people uh, because of drugs and all kind of tragedy in our society that are born, and they, they don't get to spend t even 10 years with their father because something happens and they may not know their fathers. So that's the sad part about 40 years later. As I said, ours was an anomaly or an exception. It was rare. But today, I'll, you know, when I go to schools and talk to kids, you know, you ask a kid, well, where's your father? Well, I, either I don't know or, or he's dead. Well, what happened? Well, there was a drug situation that went bad. And you find far more of that that needs to exist in, in our society, which should be so much further along. So we've, we've got a lot to overcome uh, in, in America to make America better uh, and to be able to set an example for, for the world, which we, I hope, would always want to be able to do. In the next episode of The Voices of King, we will hear Zernona Clayton, a former aide of the King family who describes details of the preparation of Dr. King's funeral. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals Sandra Brown, Senior Managing Editor Mark Wallagor, and our Editor-in-Chief Kevin Raleigh. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. 
It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.